my first assignment in Nigeria. I was young and confident and coming in and seeing, oh my gosh, there's so much opportunity. Why would we do this? Why did we do that? Engineering wise, we should solve it this way. And on the ground, you know, the feedback was, I think you need to be here for a little bit first. And six months in, I'm like, wow, I must have sounded like an idiot because none of the challenges were engineering challenges. They were political challenges, they're geopolitical challenges, they were financing challenges, they were local community challenges. And the reality is, as I go full circle, now moving into the energy transition and into clean energy, it's, it's all the same challenges. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also help us build a better world. Writer Isaac Asimov once said, or at least we think he may have said, the most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds new discoveries, is not Eureka, but that's funny. How many of our greatest scientific and technological breakthroughs have been the results of happy accidents? Velcro, safety matches, the smoke detector, and Coca-Cola are a few everyday ones that you've probably all benefited from. Plus, of course, the greatest accidental discovery of all, penicillin, which enabled modern antibiotics, earned a Nobel Prize in medicine, and has, by some estimates, saved around 500 million lives since Alexander Fleming first noticed something a bit odd was happening in the Petri dish that he forgot to clean before he went on vacation. Similarly, the innovation from today's company, Lighten, was also a surprise an unexpected byproduct of a new approach to a common sustainability process that has some amazing properties and huge potential in the materials science space. I first became interested in them because of the material's possible application in a new kind of battery chemistry for electric vehicles. As longtime listeners of the show know, EVs and energy storage are two topics that I find both very exciting and also really important to building a more sustainable future. So news about a potential breakthrough in better, lighter, more durable EV batteries got my attention. But just like light and scientists, I also quickly discovered that this was just the tip of the iceberg. And that's not just true about the company. It's also a fact about my guest, Keith Norman, Lighten's chief sustainability officer, whose fascinating career on both sides of the energy industry has taken him from Exxon to Amazon, from West Africa to the Russian Far East, and then back to Silicon Valley, where he's now playing a vital role, not just as a champion of Lighten's amazing technology, but also in defining how a chief sustainability officer shapes and builds a purpose-driven company. He's a really inspiring thought leader on sustainability, clean energy, and the ESG space in general, and I couldn't imagine anyone better to help us understand the material science behind Lighten's exciting advances. So, let's jump into the conversation. So let's start back at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about where you're from. So I am actually originally from Omaha, Nebraska. Grew up there until my teens or high school where I had the opportunity to actually move to London for part of high school. And that that really changed everything for me as I became obsessed with becoming nomadic and traveling the world after that. And so after about the age of 16, I became nomadic for about the next 20 plus years of my life. It, that actually a good segue to my next question, which is, can you think back to any lessons learned or any anything you carried with you from that upbringing that helped define who you became in business? I think probably one of the most defining features of kind of the upbringing in Omaha was just it, it is a very sort of family-oriented world sure. and and really focused on integrity and, and honesty and trust. And so that's really kind of carried on with me and especially as I started to go work you know, all over the world and started to travel the world of sort of this baseline of continuing to always be there and be honest and be authentic. It just makes life so much easier because you, you never have to worry about, okay, how, how do these stories fit together? You know, you can always just keep going forward and, and know that you've got a kind of a core baseline. Yeah. That feels like a, a true value rooted in kind of the heart of America. I wish more people would kind of <laughs> live that every day. So you're nomadic era begins. Tell us about college, what you study, where all you went, because it sounds like that theme continued through your studies too. Yes. Yeah, so I, uh, I actually went to Rice University in Houston. And one of the big reasons I went there, I was a chemical engineering student, but I wanted to be able to travel and study overseas for part of that time. And they were actually very, very accommodating of that. 
Um, and so I actually split half of my university at Rice University and half of it at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And honestly, I had no reason for going there other than uh, one of my favorite authors when I was growing up had written about South Africa. And I just had sort of this image of I wanted to go and, and see the area. And so I, I focused on that. But then that became really the next well, almost 10 plus years of my life was in and out of Africa between South Africa, Angola, Chad and Nigeria, a combination of traveling and teaching and then joining a large oil and gas company and working there as making part of my profession. Chemical engineering wasn't all you studied, right? Like you, you had, you dabbled in a lot of things. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the, the whole array of concentrations across your academic career. So engineering, I don't know, I was one of those, those people who just decided I want to be a chemical engineer when I was in high school because I love chemistry and math. And so I just decided to do that. But I, but I pretty quickly, as I got into university, realized that I love the discipline of engineering because it allowed you to go after and just tackle these incredibly hard challenges. But I also really loved the complexity of those challenges. And that complexity meant that that was engineering combined with politics and, and governments, combined with you know the humanities and thinking about both sociology and psychology of how decisions get made and, sure. and working in, in these big, large organizations and solving these big, complex geopolitical problems. Um, and so I, so I very quickly, I, I basically took all of my engineering courses as what I needed for my degree and then took as many pass-fail courses and, and everything else I possibly could from world religions to, to political science to sociology to geology to really just try to round out and say, okay, how many different perspectives can you gather sure. to go after a particular problem? And that's been a theme and actually why I, I've traveled so much is that every time you just gather more and more perspectives and that has been kind of, I think my secret sauce to success has been really unleashing those different perspectives. And also that act of listening that comes with, you, you've got to be there gathering them in and digesting them and thinking about how they compare to your other perspectives. And so that's been a, a common theme. I think your early career really sets an interesting stage for the rest of your career. So I want to hear a little bit about how you got started out of college, you know, the job market and industry you focused on, which became kind of your industry for a while. Yes. So coming out of university and getting in that last year where you start to interview for jobs, I had done no relevant internships, chemical engineering. I had spent my summers backpacking through Central and, and Southern and Eastern Africa and doing some teaching. And I sort of came across two sets of companies. Most companies looking at this logically and going, do you really want to be a chemical engineer? You haven't done any internships, like your grades are fine, but... Right. I don't know. Is this really what you want to do? And then I interviewed with one company, ExxonMobil, who happened to be sort of going into a, a, a big uptick of, of development in, in West Africa. And they just recently acquired Mobile, who had a large portfolio there. And it was, it was so interesting as I, I went into that interview. I, I think we ended up spending about five minutes on chemical engineering and about an hour on what I had done in Africa. And, and within you know, a few days, there was a job offer there. And within a few months of starting, I was in Angola because it just aligned on, you know, the engineering degree was to go solve hard engineering challenges and the fun in that. But I wanted to do that overseas. And I wanted to do that in places that were kind of the wildest places I could think of to go solve engineering challenges. And so that's really attracted me to the industry. I had no background in oil and gas. Actually, I knew honestly nothing about oil and gas. Yeah, I had to look up you know, the job that was offered to me, what it even did and what it meant. I was really there for that adventure of getting out and seeing the world. And, you know, and it offered that for almost an 18 year career. Yeah. And where all were your, were your posts? So three years in Angola, working between Luanda, the capital and offshore platforms that were a couple hundred kilometers off the coast which was a, was a trip to go spend time and fly helicopters out there as, you know, as a young 21-year-old. And then I spent three years between Chad in Central Africa and Houston, going back and forth about half time in each as we were developing kind of the first big international development uh, in foreign investment to the country. And then three years in Lagos, Nigeria, um, where, again, all this in the theme of, you know, large oil and gas developments, pipelines, drilling infrastructure, developing production of oil and gas. And then a stint in the U.S. is where I had my kids. Um, and then out into Russia for a couple of years where I was the, the vice president of engineering and technology for our Russian affiliate and a partnership between Russian, Japanese, Indian companies and ExxonMobil. It was such a rich diversity of 
experiences, locations, geographies to live in. I'm curious kind of if, if you look at that now and think about how exposure to all that changes how you look at business or how you solve problems or how you think about opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I mean the enduring piece that I feel like it armed me well for was this this view of diversity of thought and ideas and how much both fun it can be, but also impactful it can be when you really open up that there are just some completely unique perspectives. I remember going into my first assignment in Nigeria and I was young and confident and coming in and seeing, oh my gosh, there's so much opportunity. Why would we do this? Why did we do that? Engineering wise, we should solve it this way. And if we do that, this is going to be great in so many ways. It's going to make us so much money. And on the ground, you know, the feedback was, I think you need to be here for a little bit first. And, you know, I kind of took that as, oh, that's, that's the old way of working. You know, they're just not open to new ideas. And six months in, I'm like, wow, I must have sounded like an idiot. <laughs> because the problem, none of the challenges were engineering challenges. They were, they were political challenges. They're geopolitical challenges. Yeah. They were financing challenges. They were local community challenges that really stood in the way of solving just a, a pure engineering challenge. And the reality is the next you know, three years that I spent there was, was starting to figure out how to do that and recognizing, well, wow, this takes so much longer. Yeah. This is so much harder to solve. Wow, I, I'm ill-equipped to solve all those challenges. I really need to go and, and lean on the expertise and the knowledge and the history of all these different people, both inside the company and my colleagues, but outside the company and local government and, and federal government and NGOs and um, and so I think that's really come in as I go full circle now moving into the energy transition and into clean energy. It's, it's all the same yeah. challenges in terms of there isn't a big project that doesn't require, you know, local government, federal government, multiple partners, local communities, NGOs. And, and so that has really carried with me as sort of a, a lasting skill set and a, you know, a punch in the face of like, eh. You're not as smart as you think you are. Like, you know, this is how things actually have to get done. And if you don't surround yourself and are open to those ideas and that diversity of, of thought and experiences, th th then you're, you're just not going to be able to, to deliver really what you're setting out to go deliver. Yeah. I feel like you and I, are, I think, roughly the same age and graduated the same year. I feel like not many of our peers spent more than a decade in one of their first jobs. That, that, that we're kind of the start of the new era of more rapid transition in careers and vocations. I'm curious what helped you to stick around 18 years and what you think you gained from that versus, you know, what has become a more normal trend of hopping somewhere every two or three years, if that. Yeah, I, I sort of look at this question with half of me will talk about the benefits of staying as long as I did, and half of me will say why I should have left yeah. a decade earlier. <laughs> um, and I think I think you have to hold both of those as true Yeah. Um, and in balance. You know, for, for me, I think the interesting thing is I was getting to travel the world. I was getting to, you know, go solve big, complex problems. I never even thought about another job. It was just going. And I was doing yeah. very well in my career and moving up and you know taking on bigger and bigger leadership roles within the company. Um, and what I ended up finding you know, after a little over 17 years is I look back and two things had been, become true. I had begun to change and my interests had begun to change and my passions had begun to change and, and some of my values had begun to change and evolve. And I found I was with the company that, you know, right or wrong, it was a big ship in a huge company and they weren't moving as fast as I wanted to. And so that started to go, hmm. And then I looked and go, I have no network at all. Like I, I have a wonderful network among this company, right. maybe a few handful of, you know, big companies that we partner with and in different countries around the world where I worked. But in terms of saying, well, I want to go do something different. I literally had zero network. And so, you know, one side of me, was the joy and the learning of going heads down into something for years and developing that capability, developing that skill set, developing the nuance that it takes to be a true expert. Mm -hmm. And it takes absolute nuance to be a true expert in solving things like, like what we were trying to go solve. Um, but then I balanced that with, wow, that left me very closed off to things, ideas coming from outside the industry. And so when I decided to leave, it was in a straight up about face pulled the cord, walked out, got in my car and 
drove from Houston to San Francisco and said, I'm moving here because I just, I want to build an entirely new ecosystem, a new network and use my skills to solve different challenges. And so, you know, when we showed up here, I think I knew one person and didn't have a job and didn't have an exact plan of what it was going to be. But I just knew that was, that was going to be needed to sort of jump out into the next stage. I loved what I did for 17 years and learning, but I couldn't imagine my next 17 to 20 years doing the same thing. It just, it just, it wasn't the right move for me. I think there's a life lesson there that I've also recognized, which is you got to surround yourself with the people in the ecosystem that you believe you will thrive or want to thrive next. And there's value in being in San Francisco if you want to be kind of in technology or clean tech or, you know, the next generation capital investment ecosystem. And there's value in being in, in New York City if you want to be in finance. So just being able to surround yourself with those networks actually brings value along with it. Some people will call out that, hey, it may not be a very smart move to leave a, you know, a very good paying job that was economically very rewarding in a relatively low cost of living area, which was kind of Houston was the home base, to move to San Francisco with no job, with yeah. two kids in school. And, uh, you know, you couldn't think of a more expensive way to, to jump out. And, you know, I was blessed to be able to, from my time overseas, to have a, some runway sure. to go and do something like that. So it was an absolute blessing to be able to do that. But that, in my mind, was the investment. You know, you consider that, you know, paying for business school or paying to go get a PhD. It was if I want to move into what I believed was really the next wave of the next few decades, which was this movement of the energy transition, moving the economy to net zero. I go, I, you know, I've got engineering skills. I know, I know how to go solve problems and solve big problems, but I, I don't have deep knowledge. I don't know the nuance of the industry. I need to go learn it. I'm gonna, I just need to get it on the ground and start building a network and start getting out there. Yeah. Um, and that was my investment. And frankly, I'm still paying for that investment. And yeah, that was a little over five years ago as you, you have to kind of reestablish yourself and rebuild and, and take a step back and sometimes take a very humbling step back to sort of build back to where you want to go. You talk about kind of the desire and, and interest in the clean energy industry, but you have such a unique perspective spending nearly two decades inside the legacy industry and being there as the global marketplace and certainly the U.S. capital marketplace begins to recognize clean technology, clean energy as the next generation, what's coming next. You know, that it's on the horizon, it's real. I'm curious what it was like to be kind of on the inside of the traditional energy industry. Did you see and recognize the trends that this was the future? And what was it like to be in the rooms at ExxonMobil, looking around, seeing all the capital moving into decarbonization and clean technologies or all of the public policy interests around it? What was that like? So my, my last role at ExxonMobil actually was, I ran the safety, health, and environmental organization for the upstream part of the company. And that gave a really you know, interesting viewpoint into the company, looking at sort of environmental strategy as we were planning out both kind of how to solve you know, the near term, but also s- starting to see the, the, you know, the bubbling up of, of, a, of a trend moving towards clean energy you know, back in the 2017, 2018 time period. I think for me, what what became really, really clear was, you know, the large integrated energy companies and oil and gas companies are, are going to have to be part as we make this transition, just from a from a capital, from an expertise, from a just the size of what we have to do. They're going to have to be part of that. But what I also saw was the pace that they were programmed to move at for something like this, and, and this is a comment on just sort of business models and references. It wasn't the pace that I wanted to start to jump in and move at and learn in. And when you start to have that that disconnect as sort of a core value of like, I, I really want to be over here. Like this is really where my interest. If I look at what what my articles are when I when I'm looking at news, it, it's over here. Yeah. But then I go in and in my day job and it and it's somewhere else. And so that disconnect became difficult for me. And even having you know, two daughters, young daughters at the time, and one of the key messages to them is, you know, go take risk, go out there, you know, go try things. I remember my wife saying to me, "Is like, yeah, but your interest is clearly somewhere else and you're taking the easy yeah. route of sticking with what you've done and what's familiar to you. Like, how do you explain that disconnect to your kids? And I was like, dang, like you got me on this. Um, <laughs> and so that was, that was a big piece. And, you know, I continued to, you know, to view, there's a disconnect between, is that a good business in terms of investing in it, in terms of how it's going to perform on the stock market? Because I think the reality is, you know, energy companies have held up very strongly and have bounced back. But that's sort of one way to view, you know, what you're working on is successful. The other way is is really looking at 
are you working towards the outcomes that, that you want to help deliver into the world? And that's really where I, I've tried to refocus my energy, recognizing that that only matters if you can make that economically viable. You cannot disconnect those. But it's, it's maybe this transition has given me a slightly different perspective of moving away from, you know, especially in the U.S., is a company successful tends to be dominated by their stock performance. And that started to fall flat for me. It's not a, we're, we're all here to save the world and, and making money is bad. I'm not saying that in, by any means, but there has to be an and to it. And we're seeing, you know, I think of anything in the last five years, the biggest transition I've seen is that, that companies are starting to really get adept at what their and is. So we, we have to be successful financially. You know, this, we're stewards of the company and stewards of, you know, stakeholders. That is our jobs. But there is an and, and the stakeholders want that and to be there. And we have to figure out how to do both of those. And that is probably where I've spent most of my time in the, over the last five years is trying to figure out that, that and of how can you develop you know, cleaner technologies? How can you help drive economic development without subsequent emissions increases, which has sort of been the trend throughout history? And it gets really hard when you start to put both of those and say, I, I got to win at both. It, it really starts to narrow in on what are the technologies that can do that? What are the ways that you can go do that? And it's not an easy challenge. I want to get to Lighten, but one other quick question in the history books, you go from the energy supply side to the energy demand side for a little bit, working for Amazon Web Services. And so I'm curious as you saw the, the demand side and thought about you know optimizing processes and both decreasing costs, but also you know decreasing the footprint of the energy coming into AWS. Like when you put those two things together, what did you walk away having understood or learned? What was kind of the big takeaway from the confluence of those two experiences back to back? So this was a fascinating, fascinating, somewhat unplanned discovery as, as I went in and joined Amazon as part of Amazon Web Services when they were starting to develop, a, a I would say, more of a thesis around the energy industry and both traditional energy and, and clean tech and renewables and really a thesis on how do they play in that space, both from a data infrastructure, but also from being a huge energy consumer. Right. And one of the things that I didn't have full appreciation for, you tend to think of the old world of energy as these commodity markets, where it's producers put a commodity out there, and the global markets set the price, and then you've got a buyer taking that off. Yep. I don't see that as the future state anymore. And it was really interesting to, to see you know, with Amazon going, well, I am an enormous consumer. I have a massive demand, and I am going to go make commitments. I'm going to switch that demand to be renewable, and be cleaner. I'm going to set really aggressive timelines, and I'm going to use my demand signal to help drive the market. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing this all over. If you want to look back and say, okay, how do, how can I influence? You know, I may, I may not even be at a, you know, a clean tech company, but the demand signal that you can create of saying, I, I want to get here. I want to set a certain target of lowering my footprint in a variety of ways. That could be energy consumption. That could be energy efficiency. It could be a lot of ways. It could be raw materials. By setting that demand, it, it, it creates the whole sort of this butterfly effect mm-hmm. into the market. Where you go, okay, well now, now there's a market for somebody developing a new technology. And now if there's an off-taker for that technology that says, I want that, well now that new technology, that's what signal they need to get financing. And so now financing and capital starts to come in. And now you can start to go, well, now I'm going from R&D to serial number one to now I can start to scale because now I've got that, that consumer, that end demand that wants to work with me to go figure out and make sure the solution works for them. And it creates really that ecosystem that you need of both the supply and demand working together. Yeah, I always sort of viewed these commodity markets as, as somewhat disjointed. And I really think as we think about energy transition, these are going to start to become much, much more collaborative. And there's a huge opportunity um, for those that own the demand signal to use that power to really influence where they want to see their footprint going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. And I think, again, that's already being reflected in how the capital markets are engaging, right? Like there is a lot of capital allocation moving towards these technologies. Most of the folks I know that are capital allocators are very insightful, very visionary people. They're not just doing it, you know, for the goodness of their hearts. Maybe it's in their hearts, but that's not why they're doing it. So I have to think that they're seeing that same trend and going, okay, funding this will provide a good return. And to your point with the and, um, moves us in the right direction because 
we're seeing the demand signal coming from you know big corporations that this is the kind of energy they want to buy. Okay, so that gets us like all the way up to today-ish. So let's start talking about Lightning. Start, I guess, how, how you first learned about them, what brought you into the fold? So I, I mentioned the power of coming to a place like the Bay Area and, and starting to build my network. So I can map back my current role with Lightning to staying in an Airbnb in Carmel okay. um, five and a half years ago with my wife and two daughters. And and you know hitting it off with the host and and chatting with them and we had some common interests um and probably six months maybe a year later i said hey i know this company that they're working on something they could really use somebody who has experience in the energy industry to help them answer some questions that they're trying to answer around you know would their product be valuable for for that industry and i set a philosophy when i moved here it was like take every meeting take every coffee you know some of those will be won't be useful. Some of them will be moderately useful and some will have daisy chain effects that will become massively useful. And it's impossible to predict which will be which. Yeah. Um, and so I immediately was like, yep, absolutely. Let's go have it. And you know, over the course of the next year and a half, it was having a conversation here, having a coffee there, you know, helping out when they needed some expertise. Again, none of this was sort of in a paid for way, just, just in, in being helpful with my knowledge. Which eventually led me to learn about Lighten, learn about what they were doing, and always be massively intrigued and excited about the technology they were bringing forward. Uh, but also recognizing where they were in their stage, going like, what they need and what I can bring aren't aligned yet. Sure. Ideally, they will be in the future. Uh, and so that eventually allowed me to give an opportunity to invest uh, in the company. I had started to invest in companies that I had started to learn more about, especially in the energy transition space and energy tech. And you know, a couple of years after investing, it became that time where they were ready to start really thinking about scale, really going out there and to talk to the world about what they've been doing, starting to work with big Fortune 500 customers. And they needed somebody who could really articulate and help them put a vision of how their technology could help drive net zero outcomes and both do that technically, but also do that in terms of how they talk to the world, how they build the brand, how they talk to customers. Um, and it was one of those where it's like, okay, now my skill set fits. It's what they need now. I've been tracking this company for years and excited on their progress. And so it, it took about 12 seconds to, to say, yep, that's what we're going to go do. And so I've been there for about a year now. 12 seconds plus all the leg work of the few years. <laughs> yes, yes. 12, 12 seconds on the back of three and a half years of getting to know. And I mean, what was it about? Do you remember that that first coffee meeting or or even the conversation with the intermediary that introduced you to the folks? Like, what they were doing back in those early days that caught your attention? What was the what was the elevator pitch? The pitch then is actually not dramatically different than the pitch now. They had stumbled across, um, and stumbled is probably the right word. Yeah. You know, they were setting out to solve how to take methane, uh, a greenhouse gas, and turn it into hydrogen, and do that in a very clean way. And they accomplished that, but if you have carbon and hydrogen in a molecule and you want the hydrogen, you've got to do something with the carbon, which tends to be a carbon black, uh, something that you got to go deal with, kind of a moderately valuable, kind of low-value commodity. Um, and as they were trying to go figure out how to solve that, they stumbled across that they didn't actually have carbon black. They had a new form of graphene called three-dimensional graphene that when they started to go under and start to test the material, it kept exhibiting all these incredible properties of strength and weight and conductivity and sensitivity. And as they started to show me the, the experiments that they'd run with how they've been able to use the material to do everything from energy harvesting to sensors to help build batteries to lightweight construction material, it was that aha of you know, what they were working on was, was a fundamentally new material that you know, it's not just clean cement or, you know, a cleaner version of steel, which are, which by the way are great. Um, but they fundamentally are the same thing, just in a cleaner version. What they were developing is a fundamentally better material. So when you applied it to things, you didn't just get a cleaner version. You got a much higher performing material that you can then go make lighter weight, you know, vehicles and lighter weight aircraft and lightweight supply chain and make better conductivity batteries and so on. And so she had this wide opportunity. And so immediately, it, it was very quick that, hey, they were onto something with enormous potential, but equally with a very long runway to bring a new material technology in the market is just an enormous runway. 
of time and energy and capital to go do that. And so it was sort of both of those of just being really excited by what the potential of the of this new material was, but also recognizing that you know, there's lots of milestones to go to be able to do this at, at mass production. And that's really been the journey of following them as they've worked through that journey of getting into actual products and starting to bring those products to market, which is what we're, what we're doing right now. You and I, I think, talked about this previously, but the idea of how do you view yourselves or how, how do you think the world views you? Is it a material sciences company, R&D company, an energy boundary company, like all of the above? How do you paint that picture for the layman especially? It's somewhat funny to go take what are truly some brilliant scientists PhDs, you know, decades in their fields that have helped develop this technology. And then we get into a room and go lighten the what company. <laughs> like what are the what's what are the next three words? And all of us have scratched our heads right. and, and and struggled. So I can pitch you what we are calling ourselves right now, which is a super material applications company. And, and there's a reason for that. We decided that we have to think about ourselves in two parts. Um, the first part is we're truly creating a material that you know we can sequester carbon from methane, so it's a carbon capture process to create this material that truly has not just really unique properties, but can combine properties, which makes it sort of the definition of a super material um, that it can give you strength and conductivity and porosity, so it can be tuned. But that's not our vision. The vision of the company isn't just to create a material and go sell a material into the market for other people to go use, to go build things. What we really decided is to have the greatest impact. We wanted to use our ability to tune this material to go build applications with it. Um, and so hence the super material applications company. And so really our footprint into the world is a next generation battery a plastic that requires 50% less plastic and weighs 50% less but maintains its properties. A sensor that can you know, sense biological signals or approaching more sensitive than a dog's nose or other sensing technologies that can um, measure performance of infrastructure with no electronics at all. So an entirely electronics-free sensor. So all these really incredible applications. So that's really been the focus. And so hence the title. But it's an that evolving... Works. It's an evolving you know, as you bring something new into the world, I got asked on a panel not too long ago, what are the skill sets that you you absolutely need as a company as you bring a new technology? And, and it was it, very quick that I never thought about it before, but it, you know, when you're on the spot and on a panel, like sometimes the best thoughts come to your head yeah. right there. And so there's the obvious answer of, hey, we need the best scientists and engineers and technologists and you know, PhDs, which we do. Absolutely. They're just none of this could happen without that. But there's a there's a second piece, which is we need storytellers. Like we need people that can take this the complexity of that and boil that down to why that matters, why that matters to you as an individual, as you as a company, why that matters to the consumer, what will be the impact if we're successful, and do that as a simple, sort of emotionally connect to a way as possible. And it, when, you, when you talk about raising money, you talk about yeah. trying to get that first facility built, you talk about trying to work with local governments to get your permits. You know, there's one part to the science, but an equal or maybe greater part is is the story and the narrative that you are able to tell that allows people to get it. And that's that's been a lot of my focus coming in of having that engineering background, enough of that engineering skill, enough of that history to understand this and to be helpful and ask hard questions but also to then translate this into something that can go influence people. Right. People can understand. I mean, the first primary use case you focused on batteries, I think, is a good one to start with because it is so understandable. Give us kind of the, the rundown of what makes 3D graphene an ideal material for batteries and how you're revolutionizing batteries in some ways with this technology. The focus will be sort of on high-performance batteries. So think about things for electric vehicles, for mobility, for aviation, for movement of you know, last-mile delivery, trucking, things like that. So the, the focus is how do I get as much energy density with as little weight and, and size as possible so I can go power something. And lithium ion has been sort of the gold standard so far. And it's, it's done a lot of great things to allow electrification to happen in a lot of sectors, including uh, mobility. But it starts to run up against barriers of just materials, physics, barriers of how much energy can hold. And you start to add things like nickel and cobalt and manganese and you use graphite and all these different mined minerals to try to boost and, and find the best combination of performance. As you do that, 
again, you start to run up into now, if I want to scale that, I've got to go scale up mining operations. And so, you know, the vision of a, of a cleaner future starts to get complex as you start going like to get there. I, I now start to get these really complex supply chains. Um, and so again, it becomes a really complex, not just technology problem, but supply chain problem and geopolitical challenge. So what we've been able to do with three-dimensional graphene is fundamentally use its conductive characteristic to enable a battery chemistry that's been known for decades, lithium sulfur. Sulfur has a much higher capacity to hold energy uh, than a traditional lithium ion uh, battery's cathode, Uh, but it has suffered the material degrades too quickly. And it can hold energy, but it doesn't want to give it up very easily. And so it doesn't have that really high conductivity. And so what we've developed is utilizing three-dimensional graphene to go solve those two barriers, which had meant that this battery really wasn't expected to be in the market until well into the 2030s and bring that forward to start having batteries in the market for some niche applications here early next year. Awesome. Um, and what has really been able to solve is back to that super material dimensional graphene plus sulfur it can give the structural basically lattice to hold the sulfur in place almost like a rebarb if you think about of holding it so it doesn't degrade but then we can also tune that same material to be conductive and so it can give it the conductivity that it needs to perform at the high performance you need for things like vehicles um, and that was really the breakthrough that we've now taken that to really redesign the whole battery pack and so we are building you know full-on batteries and you know, we have a pilot line in San Jose that are producing batteries in, in all the same formats you'd find in you know, cylindrical cells and powered cells that you'd find in vehicles and different mobility applications. It's got to be a much easier story to tell now, which is just with that alone. <laughs> it makes it a little easier. So, you know, I think one of the big question marks with Lighten as you develop the material is great, it's a great material. It doesn't matter unless you can get it to application. And now that you, you know, we can produce batteries and put them out there, what it starts to do is now you have a really compelling story of what happens when a new material can really start to disrupt a technology. So now instead of, you know, if we look at that lithium sulfur battery, it doesn't require nickel and cobalt and manganese and graphite. And so now you've simplified the supply chain and all the mined minerals to something that you can actually source here locally in the U.S. or in Europe um, and manufacture locally. And so now a locally sourced, locally produced battery. So now you can solve some of those challenges. It's a higher energy density. We're working towards about twice the energy density, which means about half the weight. So now you've got a lighter weight. So now you've solved that problem. It's now because you don't need all those mined minerals, it's a much lower cost bill of materials. So now you've lowered the cost of the batteries. Now you've solved that problem. So, you know, what's exciting about Lighten and three-dimensional graphene and what got me excited about the company is when you can infuse new materials into something that, that has that better performance, it unlocks all these different layers of, of benefit. And to be honest, with the problems we're trying to solve and the scale that we're trying to solve at and the economics that we have to hit, be that for electrification or be that for hydrogen or clean cement or, you know, whatever it may be, you need every bit of any benefit you can get to make those things work. And, you know, bringing a new material in that starts to unlock all these new layers of benefit is really where we see the big potential. And that's, you know, each of the markets we're going after, again, batteries being the first one, is markets where we see multiple layers of of benefits get unlocked by the material. Right. How long has it been from kind of the first conversations with the team before you were even on board to now? It's interesting, many of these material science or advanced material applications, in your case, organizations, the, the runway's got to be long, and the team has to be patient and continue to believe, and the investors have to continue to pony up. So walk us through kind of that, that timeline, how the team has kind of thought about and kept moving forward, despite the fact that the horizon can be so much longer than your average tech investment, for example. You know, in, in some ways, we're a little bit of the poster child. If we're really going to try to transform the economy into a net zero economy and do that at scale across the globe. I think we're not the exception on this challenge. I think we're going to become the norm that you're not just playing at the increments. You're fundamentally re-engineering these solutions. And that does take enormous time and it does take capital and it takes a different view of your investment cycle. It's not like investing in a piece of software um, that can scale super quickly. This is, you know, an investment that to scale requires a huge amount of capital and, and technical risk and technology that needs to be worked through. And so that has been, if there's anything, and there's 
lots of great things to say about the founders of Leiden. But if there's anything that, that was maybe the most visionary piece, when they set out and discovered and realized that they had this new material, again, they had it at, at you know a little tiny thimble amount of it in a non-scalable reactor that could produce it. They very quickly realized what the potential was and that they could take two paths. They could take the path to say, find the first thing that I can apply this to and go as fast as I can to get the product in the market, which would be maybe the traditional, if I just, from a venture capital hat, you sort of say that would be more the traditional pathway. Yeah. Um, and they, they realized that, that that wasn't what they wanted to work on. They wanted to fundamentally develop this material and this technology of how it could have the biggest impact on the world. All four of the founders were very well established late in their career. Actually, one of our one of the co-founders is now in his 90s. And so a much later career um, set of individuals that had a lot of experience. And they had a very clear vision of where they wanted to take the technology. And so that meant once they figured out that they had this new material, they went into stealth mode and stayed in stealth mode for nearly seven years. And they decided not to take heavy investment from venture capital, but actually go to individuals to raise the money. You know, clear that hey, the potential is huge, but the timeline is, is equally long. And we are setting out to develop this materials platform and then turn that into the right applications to, to get these in the market. But, we, but we're going to do both of those. And that's really been the vision. And I think one of the things that they've seen is there are a very large number of people, people who have capital, that really share that vision and say, I, I, I want to go put this towards something that can have really significant impact and i recognize there's risk and i recognize that you know there's all those hurdles that need to go jump through but this is where i want to spend my time and my personal capital and other interesting thing is almost every one of them it wasn't just a capital you know infusion to help the company grow it was who do you need to talk to how can i help where can my network be of help to you and that's been invaluable to the growth of lighten is leaning on the networks of all these individuals we had the first 210 million that we raised was from over 400 individual investors. Um, and those networks and the, and the compounding effect of those networks have been, uh, I don't know the company would be here without that. And, you know, here we are today now starting to, to bring those, those first applications in the market on top of this platform. Yeah. You had written this great post on LinkedIn, speaking of investor perspective, <laughs> which was a, a reaction to a financial times article titled The Death of ESG. I'm just kind of curious, because I, I think this is so interesting and so smart and a nice segue, kind of thinking about ESG as an investor tool, but what does ESG look like in the future? And why did you think that the FT headline heralding the death of ESG was maybe not the right perspective? Yeah. I love when articles like that are written because they, they give another perspective, right? They give a perspective from an outside view of somebody looking at this industry and this, you know, almost new job and new area of focus and going, man, this doesn't seem to be going very well. Is this going away and we're going to go back to where we were? Um, that was kind of the thesis of the article. And, you know, what it, it gave me actually a, a chance to, to share a little bit on of when I actually came into this job, we decided what the job needed to do. And then we're like, what, what do we call this? Because the job was both, you know, there was a part of internally getting our house in order to make sure that we've got the lowest, you know, carbon footprint for what we manufacture and all that. But that was like a tiny part of the job. It was really around, okay, what's the vision of the products that we could create? And, and how do we enhance the value of those products by how they can help our customers hit their net zero goals that they're committing to as auto manufacturers, as airlines, as energy companies. Um, and then even more than that is that, okay, how do we go talk to the right investors that want to be investing in companies like us and be very clear and articulate with the message of what we're going to go do in a way that both balances this, we're going to go make money, this is a good investment, but we're also going to go deliver these net zero outcomes and we want people that want both of those. And so how do we articulate that to the investors? And then how do we actually just build the brand of the company around that as our ethos and say, how do we sort of take that decision that the founders made you know, seven, eight years ago and turn that into how we express the brand. So you, you piece all those together and say, okay, this is gonna be the most fun job I've ever had. Like, this is, this is fantastic. <laughs> then we're like, okay, what do we call it? And we landed on chief sustainability officer and like 50% of myself hates that title and 50% loves it. And the reason my, my hate for it was a little bit what that article was expressing in ESG of that it sort of became this microcosm of 
measurement and standards and regulatory reporting requirements. And, and you just kind of look at it and go, eh, that, that's not what's exciting people. That's not why people are investing. What I saw is, you know, a whole generation of, of people coming out of university and many of my former employees who call me and say like, I want to go work on these types of problems. I want to go work on problems that have this bigger societal impact. How do I go do that? And that's really the next wave. I looked at, you know, the, the role of this job and where I see ESG 2.0 starting is, okay, great. ESG the, in its current form did its job of making, of building awareness, of getting out there, of making it a thing. And when something goes from nothing to try to be something, okay, you, you try to work with, you kind of create language, you try to create standards and measurements, and they're kind of clunky. And that's kind of how I would w- say where it is now. So all the criticism towards it starting to see some some wear and tear and starting to look like it's not so robust, I think are fair criticisms. But I think the reality is that's just 2.0. And I think in the article I mentioned, if you look at the first iPhone versus the current iPhone, you know, the first iPhone is laughable. And you just right. sort of look at it as like, wow, we were so amazed by that. Like, you know, in today's standards, that was kind of a piece of junk. I think we're going to look back and say the same thing as like, yeah, that was just the starting point. And where I see 2.0 going is ESG, or if you want to call it net zero strategies or sustainability. So I know each have their own complexities and a little bit of nuance. Sure. But all of those falling into, no, 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 these aren't a side function that I put there to make sure I'm meeting you know, regulatory requirements. These are strategic functions that start to go, okay, what's my next products look like? Yeah. What's my next financing structure look like? Who are the types of employees I want to hire? How do I start to transform my brand? Those are strategy conversations. And how do we start to build the, the right leadership, the right skill sets to have that type of knowledge to help steer the company around those big strategic challenges? If you look at board compositions today, very few, if any, have you know deep knowledge on the board of those strategic components of how do you really compete in this future market. So it's really on the companies of how do you start to get the right leadership and the right passionate people who understand engineering, understand products, understand business, understand finance to help lead that way. And so that's the 50% yeah. I was excited about. I think that's where ESG 2.0, maybe it takes us to 3.0 or 4.0 to get there. But I think that's where it's going. And I think it's a much more optimistic view of the reality of just the, the nuance of growing something new. As you kind of think about all this and put it together, you know, looking back, what do you want your legacy to be in the world or in the business world? I don't much, I don't typically think much about legacy. It's not a concept that matters that much to me. As I look through, mm-hmm. I go back to my initial sort of reason I started my career back 20 years ago was I, I want to go out there and solve the hardest problems I can possibly find and do that in a way that is inclusive of all the stakeholders and is bringing all those diverse perspectives together to go solve it. If, if we can build an industry, or frankly, it's multiple industries, but build sort of a, a capability within industry of how we're actually going to go achieve these very incredibly difficult but absolutely necessary outcomes of decarbonizing our economy, I, I think there's probably two things that are true across every solution. The engineering is incredibly difficult, and the engineering will not solve the problem. It is a big, complex problem that requires diverse perspectives. And my hope is the way I behave, the way I work, the way I you know, go out there and, and talk about the work we're doing can help at least push a little bit forward this view of how much fun the world can be and work can be if you can combine up solving really, really hard problems and doing it in a really inclusive perspective that is really thinking about listening, taking perspectives, digesting those perspectives, and, and using the diversity of those perspectives to go solve these really complex problems. Those are the two things I'm super passionate about. And I would and and my hope is that you know that rubs off rubs off on others as we go try to solve these super complex challenges. Awesome. Where can folks learn more? Yeah, so you can go to uh, lighten.com and learn more about Lighten and what we're doing. And also, I try to continuously uh, keep up to date on LinkedIn, on my personal profile, on different articles and different thought pieces that we're putting out there. Those are probably the two best sources. Awesome. And we'll make sure to link those in the show notes for folks. Thank you so much for, for jumping on today. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate it, Connor. 
huge thanks once again to Keith Norman for joining us on today's show. As someone who also made a mid-career switch to follow a goal of making a more positive impact, I really identified with Keith's story, and I hope it resonates with you, too. Maybe it will inspire some of you to make that change you've been hesitating about or take on that mission you've been dreaming of. The leap of faith is scary, but it can be done, and it is worth it. I'm also super excited to see what comes next for Lighten and what else 3D Graphene can do. We'll definitely be keeping tabs on their work at Consensus, so stay tuned. For more information on Lighten, their science and products, or if you're interested in joining their team, you can visit the website at lighten.com. That's www.lyten.com. We'll also link in the show notes. And you can connect with Keith on LinkedIn at Keith Norman, which if you like the show and are interested in sustainability, I highly recommend you do. He's posting super illuminating thoughts and takeaways on all the latest in clean energy and ESG. For any questions, comments, or ideas sparked by today's conversation, or if you have an idea for another great conversation in the future, you can email us at cic at consensus-digital.com. That's cic at consensus-digital.com. Drop us a line with what you thought about today's show. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can also connect with me directly on LinkedIn and threads at CKGONE. And as always, if you like the show, please give us a follow, a like, or leave a review wherever you listen. It really helps us grow our reach and continue bringing you more awesome conversations with the business leaders you want to hear from. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week with a brand new conversation. Consensus and Conversation is hosted and executive produced by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode was produced by Will Gatchell and Jeff Rock with editing from the good folks at Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to the Consensus team, including creative director Kate Tucker, Greg Hergel on research, and Patrick Gallagher on strategy. Consensus in Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume.